This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good, when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp, specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour-operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar, and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode 33 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Paul Ronalds. Paul has been the CEO of Save the Children since July 2013. Paul is one of Australia's leading voices on poverty, eradication and international development. Prior to joining SAVE, Paul was First Assistant Secretary responsible for the Office of Work and Family in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And in that role, Paul provided advice to the Prime Minister of Australia at the time on a broad range of social and economic policies designed to support families and communities. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Now, Paul, I would have to say you are our most requested guest. I'm flattered (laughs) and surprised. (laughs) I regularly ask our guests and also our listeners who they'd like to see on the show and the name that has come up time and time again is yours. So it's very nice to finally have you here. I wanted to start uh, a little differently to how we usually start because I think we'll get into your background um, as we get into the interview. But the question I wanted to ask you um, regards a statement that I've heard made a few times in recent months, and I want to ask you if it's true or false. Um, so the, the NGO sector is not currently sustainable. Is that true or false? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's true. Um, the not-for-profit sector, like some other industries, is uh, experiencing really significant disruption at the moment. Um, and, you know, Changes are constant for for everyone, but I think at periods of time and for some industries, change gets to a level where we say they are being disrupted. And and in my view, what that means is that across the various parts of what it means to be a not-for-profit, you are... um, experiencing really severe change. So your financial model, uh, who and where you work, um, what you do to achieve your mission uh, and your operating model. for me, are all changing at the moment. And so not-for-profits have got to um, be thinking really seriously about whether they are fit for purpose and and how they respond to that rapidly changing strategic environment. And I guess um, that statement um, for me uh, is true because I don't think 
uh, enough not-for-profits are really thinking seriously and deeply about what the changes in their strategic environment mean for them to be able to continue to fulfil their mission. That's a really interesting answer. I, I'm curious when I hear about this disruption that's affecting the sector, do you think every generation of not-for-profits has felt as though the sector was being disrupted? Or do you think that disruption is particularly pronounced nowadays in a way that it wasn't before? Yeah, so I think this is more than just the sort of change that, of course, is is something that we experience uh, often. And, and you're absolutely right. There is always a risk that when we're, you know, when you're in charge of a large not-for-profit like I am at, at Save the Children, that you uh, feel that you are uh, in the midst of, of a degree of change that is greater. But I think, um, you know, looking objectively at the sector, uh, we can see that the nature of poverty, whether that's international or domestic, is actually changing record numbers of people on the move, the impact of climate change, growing inequality globally, um, lots of change there. The, the what we do, uh, so, you know, the growth of, say, cash programming or the opportunities and the challenges from new technologies in edutech or e-health, these are all new. At the same time, the financial model is changing. So we've, we're seeing across um, the Australian public a, a real decrease in mass fundraising and people giving to charities. At the same time, that government are looking to radically change their financial model, move away from grant funding to things like results-based contracting or consumer consumer-driven um, funding like with the NDIS and we're seeing with operating models a whole raft of competition from for-profits, from social enterprises, etc, etc. So you would expect change to be happening in one of those quadrants but for change to be happening in all four simultaneously I think is what's fundamentally different about what the sector faces at the moment. Yeah, okay, so you, you've mentioned a lot of things there that I want to unpack. I think one of them, a phrase that I hear a lot is fundraising fatigue. And uh, whenever I use that phrase, I find that there's backlash. People, I, people don't really want to accept that there is fundraising fatigue or that traditional sources of public funding aren't available in the ways that they used to be. Do you think the general public is as supportive of the charitable sector as they once were? Well, the statistics are actually really clear. Um, the proportion of Australians that are giving to charity peaked in 1983 and has been going down um, since that time. And if you look at the number of people giving to charities, so the absolute number of people giving to charities in the last few years, in every state and territory in Australia, it's been decreasing. So the numbers are really clear uh, that uh, that. that uh, we are facing a really tough time in terms of mass fundraising. Now, at the moment, the thing that's uh, allowing um, the overall numbers just to sort of stay afloat is that the average gift from that reducing number of people is actually slightly going up, uh, and that's helping to, to um, reduce the impact of that. But this is a really worrying trend, and uh, I mean, absolutely, we should be concerned that there seems to be something fundamentally shifting within the Australian uh, within Australian society that's saying I'm no either I'm not I mean, for whatever reason I'm not going to be giving to charities now whether that's I don't trust charities tra charities are not communicating to me in the way that I want to be communicated to um, I'm looking after myself first. I don't know what the issue is. I think, you know, I have some hypothesis about the way society is changing, but the, the overall numbers are really clear. Yeah. What are those hypotheses out of interest? Like, do we have a generosity shortage in this country? Yeah, I think I think we do. Um, and, um, 
you know, it's it's a hard thing to say because, uh, you know, we all like to see, think of ourselves as Australians as being really generous people. And um, uh, unfortunately, I think when we look at a variety of factors, uh, that's hard, hard to uh, demonstrate on, on the hard numbers. So if we look at uh, us as a society, we are giving, for example, things like aid at the lowest level ever in our history. Uh, we know that over recent years, the uh, aid budget has been slashed by more than $11 billion. Um, that's a huge reduction in Australia's official generosity, if you like, uh, to use that term. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing the reduction in that people uh, giving um, privately as well. I think um, there's a range of potential reasons for it. I think, unfortunately, the way that our society has uh, developed, particularly over the last, uh, say, decade or two, is that we are less exposed to poverty um, or, or to people with um, significantly different uh, economic prospects uh, on a day-to-day -day basis than what we used to be. People used to go to church, they used to go to rotary clubs, they used to be exposed to a broader cross-section of, of people. And today, in my view, and this is my hypothesis, because we are um, more insulated from people who have uh, come from a different socioeconomic background to us, we are more likely to think of ourselves, judge ourselves by that narrow group. And on top of that, our media is much more narrow than what it ever used to be. So algorithms and other things are helping to choose the sort of things that we see on social media. And we're just less exposed to the, the degree of um, need um, either amongst our fellow Australians or internationally than we used to be. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that assessment. Is there a way to de-insulate us? Like, is it is it through travel or how do we reconnect with those people that are in need? Well, I think absolutely travel's a, a wonderful thing. I think um, we need to be much more intentional these days about where we go searching for news. Um, I mean, I think it used to be that you could pick up most mainstream newspapers and you would get a reasonable cross-section of news and be exposed to that, that reasonable cross-section. But because they are much more fragmented and media is much more fragmented than it was, um, you, you, you can't just um, sit back and expect the media to arrive to you in a way that is balanced. So for me personally, I make sure that I try and read at least three or four different um, news sources that I have intentionally selected to be a broad cross-section of opinion in the Australian or international community to make sure I'm constantly being challenged um, and not just finding news that reinforces my existing prejudices, which I think is, is really dangerous. So that's one thing people can do. But I think uh, our leaders um, have a role to play. I think, unfortunately, uh, both sides of politics reinforce this notion that we are doing it tough and that um, uh, people are um, you know, struggling and that we deserve to get a tax break or we deserve to be particularly um, reimbursed or that you know, any policy that leaves us worse off is a bad policy. Um, and um, I, I think that's unfortunate. I, I, I do think that we have lacked for many years the sorts of leaders that are willing to say, actually, we are on any objective measure, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We have just experienced 27 or un, yeah, 27 years of unbroken economic growth. Um, we can actually afford to look after people um, in Australia that are disadvantaged and internationally, 
play our role internationally. You don't hear leaders, uh, I think, saying those sorts of things um, these days. Yeah. Oh, that's very true. And to come back to your point on the news, because I think that's an important certainly an important uh, angle for the government funding discussion, recognising that government funding is only one very small part of the not-for-profit sector. But when we think about government-funded aid, we still seem to be caught up, at least in my view, in this altruism narrative as opposed to recognising aid as being in the interests of national security. And maybe we've run out of time for the altruistic agenda. You know, maybe people don't care for that anymore and we do need to re-argue the point that aid is in the national interests? So I think we need to use both arguments. Um, You know, there is, uh, and again, the the analysis is pretty clear. There's a group of Australians who are actually very motivated by the altruistic purpose that says, actually, we are doing very well um, and we have a, a responsibility um, as a uh, human being who has been fortunate to, to give and, and to support others. And I think we should continue to celebrate that. <clears throat> but you're absolutely right. Um, we need That can't just be our exclusive narrative. Uh, and I think um, you know, one of the things that's actually been really helpful just in the last couple of years is a, a much greater appreciation, I think, on both Labor and Liberal that Um, the huge cuts to aid have undermined uh, our influence in our immediate neighbourhood, particularly. And when there is a vacuum, it gets filled by, for example, China and others uh, that may not share the same uh, interests uh, or motivations that Australia has. And so, I mean, you know, we've just seen um, today the new Prime Minister or the returned uh, Scott Morrison Prime Minister announced that his first overseas trip will be to the Solomon Islands. That's great news, I, I think. Now, I doubt whether aid will be um, front and centre of that trip, but I think it is nonetheless good for um, the aid agenda for Prime Ministers to be understanding that aid is one of the critical tools they have in pursuing the national interest, particularly in our near neighbourhood. Yeah, I found that a really interesting announcement today because I recall that Bill Shorten announced that if he were to be successful, his first trip would be to Papua New Guinea. Mm. And he later corrected that to say that it would be to the Ark, the Ark being... Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, Timor and Indonesia, I think. And it sort of reinforced the significance of our geopolitical interests in the region. Um, But yeah, it's an interesting interesting decision. And my first introduction to the not-for-profit sector was in the Pacific. And the point you just made regarding China really resonated with me there because I'd never really... I'd never realised the level of competition that exists nowadays uh, and I'd never realised that uh, a lot of countries in our region, as a major generalisation, would prefer to receive aid funding from China than they would from Australia. And that it's a very complex issue, but it seems, yeah, it's very problematic. It, It is. And I think on top of all of that, there is this sort of blind spot that Australia's had for a long time in relation to our near neighbours. Very few of us um, speak, for example, Indonesia, despite it being potentially, you know, one of our largest um, export markets. Um, most people, when I speak to them about Papua New Guinea, don't really know much about it at all. And yet, uh, at a closest point, Papua New Guinea is only about four kilometres off the coast of Australia. I mean, that's a very short ride in a very small boat. Um, uh, and yet, 
um, you know, when you explain to people, for example, that in Papua New Guinea, about 48% of children are stunted, that is that they have received so little nutrition as they've been growing up that it's um, impacted on their growth. Um, when you explain to Australians that um, there's drug-resistant TB that's only four kilometres away from um, the Queensland coast, um, when you explain to um, Australians, you know, the level um, of um, education, you know, the lack of education in a place like PNG, people are just extraordinarily surprised. Um, uh, and, you know, again, the similar sorts of statistics around Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. So, I mean, I think this is terrific um, that we are seeing um, both sides of politics understanding that they have to refocus on uh, our immediate neighbourhood and that we actually live in a region that is actually relatively unstable, um, that has really deep levels of poverty uh, and all of the things that go along with that, and that we have... I mean, this is what my hope is, that they see that we have an obligation as, um, you know, one of the, the largest, certainly, the, you know, the largest economy in the, in the near region um, to do something about all of that. Yeah, I agree. I hope so too. Now, before we move on from government funding, I'm interested in the role that you see uh, aid funding at a government level playing in the not-for-profit sector these days. And do you think the significance of government as a donor has decreased? Uh, well, it, I mean, certainly it, it has, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that just the, the sheer reduction in the level of, of our aid spend um, has been very, very significant. Um, uh, so there is a lot less money for um, uh, Australian NGOs to be going after to, uh, from from DFAT. Um, but, I mean, that is also part of, um, you know, sort of a broader trend that I think, again, NGOs have to be thinking through. So, um, you know, global aid is about 130-odd billion dollars. This is official aid um, globally from all sources. Um, that's a very small amount of money compared to the overall level of financial resources that are going into developing countries. Um, the level of remittances is much larger. That That is, the remittances are those um, amounts of money that people earn in, in not their home country but send back to uh, their family uh, in their home country. And then, of course, both of those numbers um, are paled uh, into insignificance by the level of foreign direct investment. So, um, you know, obviously, I'm a huge advocate for the Australian government to increase the level of its aid. And I think that's you know, there are some things that only aid can do, but I also think that NGOs need to be thinking seriously about their financial model and saying, um, shouldn't we be looking at how we leverage these much larger flows of funds um, and whether we could um, use them to have stronger development outcomes? Because if you can harness those much larger sums, all other things being equal, you're going to have a much greater impact. Uh, and ultimately, that's what we're about. Yeah, and I think that is where Save the Children uh, really stands out from the rest of the sector in, especially under your leadership, the way that Save has approached diversifying your income sources and exploring non-traditional sources of capital. Um, so could you try to give a broad brush overview of, of the approach that Save has taken in that area? Sure. So, I mean, I mean, absolutely. First of all, you know, we have sought to... Um, uh, win as much DFAT funding uh, as we can. And that's required us to think really deeply about how well we are um, 
tendering for DFAT grants and whether you know, we can demonstrate that we are the most effective, most impactful um, organisation. So that's sort of the first piece. Second piece, we've then been looking at other funders within the region. Um, and there are a growing list of what we call multilateral funds. So education can't wait. Um, uh, the Australian, uh, the the Asian Development Bank, a whole range of multilateral funders. Are we able to um, put forward a really good case for why they should fund the sorts of things that uh, an organisation like Save the Children is interested in? So health and education and child protection and those sorts of things. Um, but beyond that, um, looking to say, well, how can we harness some of those um, foreign direct investment flows? And so we have um, recently. Um, helped to found um, a intermediary organisation called Inclusive Ventures uh, with um, the, the mission of looking to work with corporations investing in developing countries, particularly in our region, um, and helping those companies uh, make their investment more pro-development. That is, for every dollar that they invest, that it has a better development outcome for the country in which they're, they're investing. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, we're looking at more unusual sources. So we're in the process now of seeing whether we could establish a social impact fund, which would be tapping directly into um, the global financial markets uh, and whether we can then leverage that funding flow to, to uh, really help take some of the, the social innovation that we see to scale. Yeah. Wow. So, so SAVE is in its 100th year this year and mm. um, I have had the great privilege of learning about um, some of those new funds um, and, and one of those, as you've touched on, is an investment fund. So you'll be looking to invest, correct me if I'm wrong, you'll be looking to invest in uh, development innovations um, from hopefully from the end of this year onwards. Uh, so what does that mean for SAVE? Well, um, the strategic challenge that, that we're trying to address with that is there's actually quite a lot of social innovation going on in the not-for-profit sector. M my concern is that there's actually very little social innovation going on that is um, thinking about how to scale from the beginning. And there's very few sources of funding um, that will support uh, scaling social innovation. Um, so, so what the Social Impact Fund is seeking to do is not to uh, support early stage entrepreneurs. There are lots of other incubators and accelerators uh, in Australia and elsewhere that are supporting that really early stage, helping social entrepreneurs find it, you know, get their business plan and perhaps start to, to bring in their first level, you know, first amounts of, of income. What we're looking for is um, the next level of funding that will help uh, a social entrepreneur that's starting to demonstrate a really good track record and that they've got an idea that is has got some real potential to start to say, well, can that be taken to scale? And of course, that's not just about the funding. Um, one of the reasons why I think uh, Save the Children is uniquely placed to support this uh, is because, of course, we've got this really big global footprint. Uh, we operate in 115 countries. We've got 26,000 staff. We've got really deep relationships with bilateral and multilateral funders all around the world. And actually, if we can uh, bring a bit of money to the table that helps to fund uh, scaling plus those relationships and the platform, the global platform that we have, then we think that we've got something to offer social entrepreneurs that is really attractive and, of course, at the end of the day, has the potential to have a much bigger impact on the things that 
that concern us. Uh, the lack of a quality basic education that children are getting, the numbers of children that are continuing to die from preventable causes, uh, and the level of violence that children are seeing globally. So we're pretty excited about the potential for uh, a social impact fund combined with uh, the platform that Save the Children brings to the table uh, to really help to uh, accelerate the growth of some very exciting social innovation. Yeah, me too. And from my perspective, this this is a very innovative step for an Australian charity to take. Would you agree? Like, do, is this is this pretty progressive? Well, no one else's, no uh, other operating charity has tried to do this, uh, certainly not in Australia. And actually, I haven't yet found any uh, really good global examples either. Um, and of course, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a little bit cautious because we haven't actually managed to land it yet. Uh, I'm very confident that we will. But of course, um, you know, whenever you're doing something new and innovative and creative, um, you know, uh, there's a fair degree of risk associated with it, um, and that's just part of, of what you sign up for. Um, but, you know, should we be able to la uh, land this, it'll be a really exciting innovation. And I mean, you know, my hope would be that other charities would look at it and go, well, we can replicate what Save the Children. You know, they've led the way, but we can actually do this now too. And, um, you know, we see a whole raft of leading NGOs start to, to do this because, Again, you know, there is lots of innovation going on, but actually innovation at scale, that's the diamond in the rough and um, we've really got to try and find that. Yeah, certainly. I'm interested. I mean, SAVE has an 100-year legacy as as um, we've been speaking about and as has been in the media recently. How advantageous is it to have such a long and global legacy when you're trying to innovate and almost recreate parts of the brand? Like, is that legacy ever inhibiting or is it always something that just propels you forward? Oh, no, I think, um, you know, th there's advantages and disadvantages of it. So I think um, when people think about innovation, they don't immediately think of a brand like Save the Children. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm often very surprised when, um, you know, lists of the more innovative organisations come out. Um, Save the Children is very seldom on those lists, um, despite you know, I think us really doing a good job in that space. Uh, and I think that's, again, just a perception thing. People don't think of us, um, they think of us as a 100-year-old charity. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, there's a degree of, of trust um, from donors and from governments that come with being an organisation that's been around for 100 years and that has our scale and size. Um, so for me, the challenge is to try and overcome those negative perceptions um, but continue to leverage um, the advantages that a 100-year-old organisation um, has. Uh, and if you can get those two things right, um, then um, that's a pretty magic mix. It is magic. And the other innovative element of the many innovative elements of your work is the consolidation agenda that you've had in recent mm -hmm. years. Um, so we've had a couple of great conversations on mergers, acquisitions, consolidation on this show, including with Elliot Costello, who I know is a friend of yours from YGAP. Um, why is consolidation so important right now? Well, I think, um, you know, all of that disruption that I spoke about earlier um, plays into it. Um, secondly, you know, there are um, really significant uh, advantages from economies of scale. And at the same time, we're seeing, um, you know, stakeholder expectations increasing, which require 
quite expensive systems and processes and there's a range of, of uh, factors I think in play which say that consolidation is, is a good thing. You, you spoke briefly about um, giving fatigue. Um, uh, I think that is absolutely um, something that is there. Everyone says to me there are too many charities and I think that's right, too many charities are chasing too few dollars all with pretty much the same business model. Um, and. Um, you know, we all, as leaders of an organisation like Save the Children, like to uh, say that, you know, we've got this unique um, brand, that we've got a unique culture, and partly it's true, but the reality is most Australian um, donors uh, look at an organisation like Save the Children and don't really know how to distinguish us from other child-focused agencies, whether it's World Vision or Plan or um, you know UNICEF or whoever it might be. Um, so we're not as special as we like to think we are. Uh, so when that's the case, uh, you know, I think we've got a, you know, there's a serious obligation on charity leaders to go back and say, would one plus one equal three here? That is, would combining my organisation with another organisation um, actually not destroy value, but actually create a much stronger organisation that's going to be more impactful to achieve our mission? Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, I just see too little of that uh, going on. I think we're uh, generally too ego orientated, too worried about um, our particular brand or th we kid ourselves that we've got some special culture. Um, uh, and all of that might be partly true, but it doesn't outweigh the benefit to beneficiaries and the ultimate mission. And that's what we've got to be, we've got to be really mission driven. Um, so it's, this is not about a, an agenda where big NGOs are getting bigger uh, or that big is always good. It's not what that's about. It's about saying that uh, when you look at the opportunities objectively, would we have a greater impact on our mission if we combine these organisations? Um, would it make us more efficient, more effective, more influential with government? Uh, and uh, I think that in some cases uh, where the missions of organisations are aligned, um, that is absolutely the case. Yeah, yeah, you've explained that really well. I think complementary to the consolidation discussion is the discussion on um, partnerships with the private sector, which is another area that I think the appetite of the not-for-profit sector to partner with privates has grown in recent years, and I think that's really encouraging. I'm a huge advocate of private sector engagement in development. Um, I had an interesting conversation last week with someone else who I believe you know, um, the CEO of Carnival Cruises, about how uh, Carnival was the first private sector company to sign an MOU with DFAT. Um, and since then, many more have signed similar MOUs, but they were the first to really demonstrate that a private sector company with a for-profit agenda could go out and have a really material impact on aid. And in their case, that was aid to Papua New Guinea. So in your view, what role does the private sector have to play in these conversations and what's your willingness to work with the private sector? Well, I, I mean, my sort of starting point is that most of the really difficult problems that our world faces actually can't be solved without government, the private sector and civil society working together. So if I think about the most difficult, wicked problems, whether that's climate change or poverty or Indigenous disadvantage, all of these require the three parts of our society to come together. Um, so, so that's sort of my starting point. Um, from there, you say, righto, well, what's my unique um, contribution as a large civil society organisation and, and what's the value that a private sector organisation um, 
uh, brings. Um, so, you know, take Carnival. Um, we've had, I think, now an eight-year relationship with Carnival um, in the Pacific, uh, and that has a range of different um, forms. So. Uh, you know, there's uh, everyone that cruises on a Carnival ship can give um, $1 on the top of their ticket um, and most choose to do so. Um, and that those $1 are collected and, and um, uh, forwarded on to, to save the children. So it's a good source of revenue for us. Carnival itself has been a, a very generous donor. Uh, and then at times when, for example, we've had a major humanitarian crisis in the Pacific, um, we've actually leveraged Carnival's um, assets. Um, when we had a major um, cyclone, for example, in Fiji, and we had to um, get a whole range of um, iron and, and other very heavy things that couldn't be lift, airlifted, um, um, Carnival stepped up. We got it to the Brisbane port, um, and it went in the in the bows of one of their big cruise ships that was going through to Fiji, and then got offloaded. And actually, it was really good. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't there, but I'm told that um, all of the uh, passengers on that particular cruise liner were very excited that they were going to Fiji, and you know, um, with all of this additional material that would help homes be rebuilt, and you know, uh, schools um, uh, start to to, to uh, recommence, and all of those sorts of things. So um, absolutely, there there are um, great examples of where the corporate sector uh, can bring its expertise and capability uh, to the table. Um, I would say that it is um, not an easy thing. Uh, like any partnership, we nearly always underestimate how much effort and work is required to be able to make um, a good partnership work. Uh, and of course, the corporate sector is like that. Um, any corporate relationship is like that. They have their own interests. Um, and um, you know, you've got to be pretty wide-eyed to know that sometimes their interests won't line up with yours and you know you've got to accept that and other times where they can or with a degree of of innovation uh, you can make the two interests line up well that's great and you take advantage of those but but be um uh pretty clear-minded about when that works and when it doesn't yeah i think it is important to note that a private sector partnership is not just a fix-all solution and it, it it does encounter all the same challenges as any partnership but, I, I, yeah, I think that's a good example. There's two other topics I wanted to cover before um, before we wrap up. I could talk to you for hours, but I think these are the two that I'm particularly keen to ask you about. So, first of all, um, something that really amazed me about SAVE as I've learned more about your organisation over the past few years is how 45% of the business is in Australia. And we talk so much about international development on this show Uh partly because that's that's just the focus of the show. However, I think it is really important to note that 45%, a very substantial portion of your business, is focused on uh, needs in Australia. So can you comment on that and also comment on why it seems to receive less attention to the international part of your business? Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, we spoke right at the outset about the, the disruption, I mentioned very briefly, you know, my view that the, you know, the who and where is changing. Um, and I, you know, used examples like, you know, record numbers of people on the move, for example. Well, actually, you know, the growing level of inequality uh, uh, is um, meaning that there are increasing numbers of people in high income contexts like Australia um, that are ne in need of support. And actually now we've gone to a world where the majority of the world's poorest children are no longer, for example, in low income countries, they're in middle income countries. So um, f for me, it's much more important 
than it used to be for an organisation like Save the Children that has these universal goals where we want a, a quality basic education for every child, no child to die from a preventable cause, no child to be subject from violence. That means that we have to be now much more active in middle and high income countries like Australia. And of course, we know in Australia that we've got some really particular problems, um, such as Indigenous disadvantage. Some of the uh, um, social uh, issues in Indigenous communities are on a par uh, with the worst of what we see in Africa. And that's something that is is really, you know, something we should all be shamed of as, as Australians. So for me, if I'm taking seriously the global mandate of Save the Children, then I need to be looking around and saying, what can I do in Australia that starts to have a really big impact uh, on the most disadvantaged Australians? So, so that's part of the motivation. The second part of it is that um, often we are, uh, as NGOs, very focused around our service delivery, and that's important. But actually, I think the the, the value that a development agency brings to service delivery is, has been something that's been significantly underrated. So this notion, particularly in Indigenous communities, but in all communities, where we come in, we think about how we uh, how we will exit from our community right from the beginning of when we start providing services is really important. How do we build the capacity? How do we train local leaders? How do we identify uh, emerging leaders and actually just make them more powerful so that they can lead their own communities? That's sort of the heart of what it means to be a development agency. And I think um, what has been really successful for Save the Children in Australia is that we've brought that sort of development thinking to our service delivery um, in a way that perhaps other organisations um, haven't traditionally done so. So we've seen enormous growth in our Australian work. Uh, it's grown about 300% over four years. Uh, about 50% of our work in Australia is in Indigenous communities. And as a result, um, and because we're taking that development approach, a really significant number of my Australian workforce is Indigenous. Uh, about 26% of my Australian workforce is, is Indigenous. And that reflects the fact that when we go into a community, what air, Catherine, Mount Isa, those sorts of places with significant Indigenous populations, we look to recruit from the local population and train uh, and support and help emerging leaders come there so that when we withdraw, um, we're leaving a really strong legacy behind. So that's it's, it's, it goes right to the strategic challenge, I think, um, uh, for um, all NGOs, but it also really uh, resonates with uh, Save the Children's particular mission. Yeah. It does. And I think that's an important point that you make that development agencies are often very well equipped for service delivery. And um, I had a conversation with Rosemary Addis uh, about a month ago now, and she commented on how development agencies are often unknowingly experts at logistics by virtue of the very fact that they work in developing countries where logistics are often a huge challenge, and yet they don't capitalise on that capability in logistics in the way that they should. Mm, absolutely. We run 300 warehouses globally as Save the Children. Uh, we've got massive warehouse capabilities. We have a um, you know global logistics hub in Dubai that allows us to get pretty much any goods anywhere in the world within about 12 hours. Um, you know, there's actually, you know, outside of armies and a, and a few logistics companies, no one's with that sort of capability. So uh, absolutely. Um, of course, it is a brand challenge for us because we are still known as, a, as an international NGO, despite the, the fact that so much 
of our work is is here in Australia. And look, I think that's just a factor of um, often the sort of media that Save the Children gets. Um, you know, we are often one of the most quoted NGOs um, in um, the news uh, in each month, but it's nearly always the big humanitarian crises, uh, the Yemen's, the, the Syria crises, the Rohingya crises that get the most interest um, from a media perspective. And of course, um, we find that the most effective fundraising is to highlight our international work rather than our domestic work. Um, people really like the fact that we're working domestically, but they, affect, I think, expect uh, government um, to be footing most of that bill um, and they want their private donations to go to the international work. Yeah, right. It's an interesting, interesting trend. Okay, now it would be remiss of me to not um, mention the campaign that Save the Children is currently mm. running, which is Stop the War on Children. Um, I would have to say it's one of the most powerful campaigns I've ever seen. And the statistics that I've heard throughout this campaign have really stayed with me. So I wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about that and tell us what success looks like in 10 years' time for this campaign. Yeah, so we were uh, founded by someone who was really concerned about the impact of war on children, Eglatine Jeb and Dorothy Buxton, our, our two female founders of, of Save the Children 100 years ago, um, created Save the Children because of the impact of war on children in the, in the initial situation in Eastern Europe. Um, very unpopular uh, in Britain for them to be going around and advocating to um, support um, the, what were seen as the enemies, uh, the children of the enemy. Um, uh, and um, really the 100-year uh, campaign, the Stop the War on Children campaign, goes back to those roots. Um, we've made enormous progress as a planet on education and health in relation to children, but actually the issue that hasn't um, uh, improved, in fact, has actually got a lot worse, is the impact of war on children. 420 million, or one in every five children on the planet, is impacted by war. Uh, and in fact, uh, for every one uh, fighter in a war that is killed, five children are killed. And of course, um, anyone that's reading um, the news, international news these days would be seeing the sorts of uh, horrific scenes that are going on in Syria, in Ibid, particularly at the moment, uh, in northern Syria and, um, uh, and in Yemen. So um, it uh, goes right to the roots of who Save the Children is, but actually um, it's a campaign that I think is one of the things that should shame us most as a as a planet, um, that we in 2019 are still treating children in this way, that adults are uh, conducting wars in a way that has such um, a huge impact on children, the innocent victims of war. Certainly, it, incredibly shameful and it's hard to find the words just to articulate how incredibly shameful that is. For our listeners who want to understand this more uh, how can they get involved and and what would indicate that this campaign has been successful well there's some really practical things um, for example at the moment um, Australian taxpayers are providing a greater level of funds to subsidise and support Australian armament manufacturers to Saudi Arabia that are then potentially being used uh, in the Yemen conflict where we know that atrocities are being conducted almost on a daily basis. Um, so 
we have been advocating for the Australian government, like many other governments around the world, to impose a ban on the transfer of any military technology to Saudi Arabia. And I think it would be great if any of your listeners um, wrote to their local MPs um, and said, um, this is unacceptable uh, and we want it to stop. Um, the second thing is that many countries around the world have signed the Safe Schools Declaration. And the Safe Schools Declaration uh, is a declaration that you shouldn't think you think shouldn't be necessary. Um, that is, that schools are safe places and shouldn't be used um, by armies, shouldn't be bombed. Pretty basic stuff, but unfortunately, we know that that happens um, constantly. Um, for whatever reason, and I, I can't quite understand it, the Australian government so far has resisted signing the Safe Schools Declaration, um, like many, many other countries. And, and quite frankly, that's unacceptable. Um, thirdly, I would say that um, Australia could do more to join with others in the international community to hold people that are committing atrocities against children to account. And obviously, the most obvious um, situations there are again in Yemen and in our region uh, in relation to the Rohingya who were um, forced out of uh, Myanmar and are currently uh, more than a million of them living in, in Bangladesh. Um, those perpetrators need to be held to account and we need to uh, make it clear to anyone that is committing atrocities against children in war that they will be held to account. Um, and then finally, um, you know, we are massively underfunding these humanitarian crises. Um, the global well, the world spends three times more on ice cream than it does on responding to humanitarian crises in total. Um, uh, so when you see the level of need, um, not just in war zones, but in uh, places affected by drought or cyclones or earthquakes and say, gee, you know, how are we ever going to afford um, the rebuilding? Um, it's not really a matter of money. Uh, it's a matter of political will and about you know, where, that, uh, where the existing financial resources go. I think those are some really tangible things that any listener can do to, to, to get involved and I would strongly encourage them to do so. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I've learned so much and um, really grateful, really grateful we could have you on. So thank you. It's great to be on. Thank you very much. 